Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Hey, um, two things real quick. First, next weekend, next Sunday is Mother's Day. You have been pastored, okay? Take care of your mama. All right. Second thing. uh, Hey, if you're newer with us, uh, maybe you've been checking us out. Maybe today's your first day or you've been around a little bit and you've been kind of observing. I want to invite you to take a step, a small step, uh, and join us immediately after the service for something we call starting point. And the reason is everywhere the Bible talks about a church, it says things like the church is a a family, the church is a body. Basically, it's a place where in a community where you are known and you know some others, all right? Uh, So if you've been watching for a while, you've been kind of checking things out, that's good. Uh, We're glad for that. We want to kind of be a place where you can do that. But then we want you to take a next step. So right after the service at both of our campuses, we're going to have something called Starting Point. It's like a 20-minute orientation to who we are, all right? Uh, I'll lead it here at Providence Road. My wife, Courtney, will be involved in that. Some of our other pastors, uh, Pastor Joseph up at Northeast. Uh, And we just want to invite you to stay here, ask some questions, and get to know us. I don't know if Mercy is going to be the church for you or not, but that will help you figure it out, okay? We believe that some church is the church for you, and we want to help you figure that out, all right? That's that. With that said, if you got your Bible, make your way over to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel. You get to 1 Samuel, keep going, right? Um, as we move into 2 Samuel, if you're new with us, like I was saying, it's a great time. You're kind of kicking off a new book of the Bible. It is the second half, um, kind of 1 Samuel, and then there's 2 Samuel. We've been in 1 Samuel for a while. Pastor Richard kicked us off into 2 Samuel last week, and we're feeling a shift as we move into 2 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel is all about the rise of this guy named David, uh, going from obscurity, youngest and smallest among the brothers in his own family, this obscure town of Bethlehem. All of a sudden, he's rising in power because he's anointed to be the next king of Israel. Well, starting today, we're going to begin to look at the reign of King David. David is the greatest king Israel ever has, ever. Like, he unites the kingdoms, and there's like a northern and southern kingdom in Israel, all the, these different tribes. He brings them all together. Y'all, we're going to see today, he's going to establish the capital of the kingdom, and it is still the capital of Israel today, right? Not only that, his, his symbol, the star of David, still waves on the flag over Israel today. He is their greatest king. He in the words of uh, modern day language, he's him, all right? He's a big deal. And yet, what you're gonna see time and again as we go through 2 Samuel is that he is not perfect, he's deeply flawed, and he is not permanent, which is a big deal because there was a promise given a long time ago before David to God's people that someone would come and would be the good and perfect king, the Messiah, the Savior, who would reign forever. 
And we're going to see that promise by the time we continue through 2 Samuel, we're going to see that that promise is not about David, but about someone David is foreshadowing, right? 2 Samuel is going to record some dark hours of David where he betrays himself, he betrays God's people, he betrays God. And I bring that up to reinforce something we made really clear in 1 Samuel, that there is a lot of good that we can learn from David. There are things he does and the ways he walks with God and the ways that he leads people that are really good that we should learn from and we should apply in our lives. But the Bible tells us there's a more foundational meaning to King David's life. He's a good model, but there's a deeper meaning than being just kind of trying to be like him. And here it is. This is what we're talking about today. The Bible makes the case that every single soul, every single one of us, every single human soul has at the center of it, a throne. We're wired up, created by God to give honor to the king that sits on that throne and to serve whatever king sits on that throne. Each of us has a throne. I'm gonna have a little fun today. And to illustrate this, I'm gonna pull from something that I learned back in college when I was involved in ministry called Campus Crusades, now called Crew. Um, it was a little just illustration that my Bible study leaders taught me to help me understand my faith, help me to share my faith with other people. And I hope that it helps you understand your faith and then share your faith with others as well. Here's kind of the first image that I wanna show you just to set up what we're talking about. Every soul, that's that circle right there, that's you, has a throne. Now, yes, it's just a chair. It's not that impressive of a drawing, okay? That's the idea. We're gonna keep it simple around here. The stick figure type work is all I'm really going for, okay? Every single soul has a throne, all right? What makes David's life, specifically his time as king, so powerful is the Bible says, just like the people of God in David's day had a throne and David sat on that throne, every one of us has a throne and something, something or someone sits on that throne as king. Because what scripture says is we are created by God to give ourselves to something beyond ourselves, to something bigger than ourselves. So what we do is we put something, we will, We'll put something up on the throne of our hearts and we will celebrate it and serve it as our king. The visible evidence of that, it's whatever you give your time, talent, and treasure to. Whatever you give your time, talent, and treasure to, that's what's sitting on the throne of your heart right now. What are the things that, even when you think of time, when you have idle time, what does your brain start to drift towards and you wonder about? When it's not going well, you get really anxious and worried about it. And when it is going well, you get really excited about it. Every single soul, every heart has a throne and a king that sits on it. Now, what's the king's job? The king's job is to give peace to his kingdom, a sense of security from outside invaders. It's to give order and fulfillment to the people that are in his kingdom, not in a way that oppresses them, that'd be a bad king, but in a way that the people in the kingdom can flourish right? They can find meaning to all the things in their lives. A king brings order and peace and flourishing in his kingdom, but without the right king on the throne, your soul, your kingdom will ultimately be dysfunctional. The things in your life that should be small, shouldn't be that big a deal, become huge deals, occupy a lot of your time. And the things that really should be big in your life, get your leftovers. They get small and forgotten. That's what this next image I'm going to show you represents is all the different things that are in your life Without the right king on the throne, they are sometimes uh, oddly sized. They're way out of focus in your life. 
They're dysfunctional. And instead of your life being quiet and full and organized and purposeful towards something, your life is loud and empty and in disarray. What 2 Samuel is going to point us to, what the whole Bible is saying, is that there's only one king who can bring peace and lasting fulfillment and order and flourishing to your soul. There's only one that can occupy the throne in a way that's good for you, that can bring you peace and purpose, but he has to, listen to me, this is the big claim today. He's got to sit on the throne to do it. He's got to sit on the throne of your life to do it. As our main character, David, finally claims the throne today of Israel, it's a picture, a picture of every single one of us. We're going to see four different reaction to King David's coronation, which I didn't even plan this, but there was like, there was a coronation yesterday, right? Did you guys see this? I, I didn't. Um, actually, I put it on mute and read my kids the Declaration of Independence while it was not as pied at the head. It's too much fun. I just, I just missed it. I didn't see it. But I'm sure it was great. Um, I'm sure it was great. I bet there were a lot of different reactions to it, right? Which just makes this great for today. Each one of the reactions we're going to see to David's coronation is going to come with an assessment moment for us, all right? And here's the deal. The pretty offensive, but at the same time true and good announcement of the Bible is that Jesus has made a claim, not just to the throne of heaven, but to your throne. Listen, it's offensive. If you've never heard it, never dealt with it before, it's offensive. He's made a claim to the throne of your soul. What are you going to do with that claim? How are you going to respond? We'll keep coming back to that over the next few weeks because I don't know that there's a better picture of Jesus and the whole Old Testament than King David. And what we'll see today is that David's rise to the throne of Israel has been some time coming. And now that it's here, not everybody reacts the same. There's a few different reactions. There are three ways that we're going to see people just reject David. And one where they exalt David, they honor him as king. All three that reject David ends the same way. It ends in their destruction and death. There's a bunch of different ways that they reject him, but it all ends the same way. It ends in their destruction. And in them, I think we see pictures of how people respond to the claim of Jesus on their lives today. And if you're like, man, this is my first time in church. I'm not a Christian. I was coming to get like a hopeful message and you're kind of bumming me out right now. Okay, here's the deal. I'm actually really glad today is the day that you're coming and checking out church because what I'm gonna talk about today ultimately is where do you stand with God? Where do you stand with God? What could be better for you in the morning than being clear about when it comes to the Christian message, where you actually stand with God? That's a really good thing. And it'll be maybe hard, a little bit offensive in moments when it comes to someone claiming the throne of your life and that you might not be the one that should be on that, but it'll be ultimately for your good. All right. We're going to work through chapters four and five of second Samuel to get there. So we'll start in chapter four. Verse one, we'll start seeing the, actually here in the first verse, we'll see the first reaction to this claim to the throne. Here we go. When Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, kind of a tough deal he got there. It's, you know, his older brother's named Jonathan and he gets Ish-bosheth. But anyways, he heard that Abner had died in Hebron. He gave up. He gave up. And all Israel was dismayed. Now, let me catch you up because we're jumping from chapter one to chapter four. King Saul, the first king of Israel, he's dead. His commander, when King Saul died in battle, 
his commander, Abner, had survived. Well, Saul's son, let's just call him like Bo. We'll call him Ishbo, okay? We'll call him Ishbo. Ishbo gets the official title as king. He's, his brothers have died. He's the king. It's clear from chapters two and three that even though Ishbo is now the king, this guy Abner's kind of the puppet master. He's still the one with the real power. He commands the army. He's the one that pulls all the strings. Abner leads a civil war against David. And it really, it's like a whole bunch of people die in it, but Abner survives. And what you see, the author keep putting in there time and time again is, Saul's house is getting smaller and weaker. David's house is growing larger. So after a pretty significant defeat, Abner wises up and goes, you know what, man, I gotta, I gotta go make peace with David. I can read the writing on the wall. I need to go make peace with David because he's gonna be the king and I'm either gonna get destroyed or I'm gonna go and join the other team, right? Um, so Abner, here's the problem. In that last battle, Abner had killed this young guy who had a couple of brothers that lived, one of them was named Joab. They were pretty mad at Abner for killing their brother. Abner goes, sees David and says, hey, let's make peace. David's like, all right, let's make peace. Was Abner is leaving the room having made peace with David. Joab, whose brother Abner had killed, walks in and he's like, David, that's the dude that killed my brother. And David's like, look, man, I've made peace with him, but his blood is just not on my hands. And Joab's like, that's all I needed to know. And he walks out and goes and grabs Abner. And he's like, hey, man, can I just come pull you real close um, tell you something? And Abner's like, yeah, sure, what's up? Boom, stabs him in the stomach. Abner's dead, okay? So now Abner's gone. And what you're seeing in all this is that David's rise to power is anything but peaceful, okay? It's some blend of like tribal warfare and civil war all mixed together. Well, now Ishbo has lost his dad. He's lost his commander, but he's still the king. And what does he do? He gives up, throws up his hands in despair. And in this first verse, I see one of the reactions to David's rise to power. Ishbo has the most to lose out of anybody else we're gonna see. He was the heir to Saul's kingdom. And instead of all this news about David's rise, leading him to deal with the situation, to make a decision about what to do with David, he chooses to do nothing to give up and to hole up while David's house continues to grow stronger. And he knows that David is the one that God has anointed for the throne. And I'm here to tell you, doing nothing is doing something. This is true in all areas of life. And it's true when it comes to the announcement of the gospel. That you and I, Romans 3, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to me. This is true when it comes to the announcement of the gospel. The announcement of the gospel is that Jesus, who has died for your sins to offer you forgiveness for your sins, has also made a claim for the throne of your soul. Just like David had made the claim for Ishbo's throne in Israel. And this guy tries to avoid it, to avoid the, avoid the claim entirely. Just hold up pretend like it didn't happen and watch what happens to him. Two of his own men betray him. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding parties. One named Benah and the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Burethite of the Benjaminites. Rechab and Benah, the sons, oh, I'm going to go down to verse five. The sons of Ramon, the Burethite, set out and arrived at Ishbosheth's house during the heat of the day. 
while the king was taking his midday nap. That's in there to show you he's just, he's not worried about it. He's just holding up, pretending like nothing's happening. Everything is normal. They entered the interior of the house as if to get wheat. And here we go again. They stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Benah escaped. They had entered the house while Ish-bosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom and stabbed and killed him. They removed his head. How clinical for such a very like graphic thing. They removed his head, took it, and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. We'll talk about those two guys in a second. They're actually our next reaction. But I want you to see Ishbo's tragic demise. He thought he would avoid the problem. But in the end, avoidance is action. He knew what he should have done. He knew he should have done what his father failed to do. He should have been the one to go to David and say, hey man, dad has told me about this a lot, okay? I know he has some troubles. He told me a lot about the fact that you're anointed. Here, the throne is yours, but he doesn't because man, he's got a lot to lose. He's got a lot to lose if he hands that over. And I find when someone feels they got a lot to lose, a common response to the gospel is just to avoid making a decision about it. Let me just put it off. Let me just avoid it. And inside, whether they say it or not, the reason they're doing that is because they will be grieved by the authority they are losing over all their stuff. I like my stuff. I like being in charge. There's too much to lose. I don't want to deal with that. And it, I hear, I see in Ishbo and that sense of despair, I see the rich young ruler from Mark 10, where Jesus says, the rich young ruler says, man, what do I do to follow you? I've obeyed all the laws. Jesus loved him. And I want you to hear that today because he loves you. He loved this guy and said to him in his love, he says, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And it's tragic. He was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Here's the point I will leave up on the screen for you to write down. First reaction Avoiding Jesus leads to your destruction. That's a hard, offensive truth from scripture. To avoid Jesus is to make a decision about Jesus. Avoidance is action. Avoidance is the same as rejecting. Putting it off, I'll deal with that when I settle down, is the same as rejecting Jesus. Once you hear the gospel announcement, y'all, you just can't pretend like you didn't. You made it to church today. So, just like Ishbo, you're accountable to what you do about the news that the king has made a claim for your throne. And I've found people in the South are just really good at avoiding Jesus. Get a little church language. You're able to do a really good job at it. Because if you, if you deal with him, there are only two options. You got to accept him, which means you got to get off the throne. Or you got to reject him. And that feels scary. So instead, you want to be kind of polite and pull the new phone who dis method and try and act like, uh, I, don't, I didn't know that you said that. I didn't get that email. Yes, you did. Look, here's the picture I'll draw for you or have drawn for you for the one who is ignoring Jesus, the one who is avoiding Jesus. Here's what you're doing. You are on the throne. You're saying I'm the one on the throne and I'm pretending Jesus is out there and I'm pretending like I don't even see him. I'm avoiding him. Maybe it's because you think he will rob you of fun or pleasure or achievement 
or change your plans for your life. And you're like, I can't hear about that right now. Because if you avoid it, maybe then it won't be real. What I'm telling you is there really is a throne on your soul. And to avoid the rightful king will lead to your destruction. And when I talk about destruction, I mean not only a lack of, I do mean a lack of fulfillment in this life. And I also mean eternity apart from God. Now, look, I know you will likely not be assassinated in your sleep, like Ishbo, okay? But as hard as it may be to believe, the stakes are greater than that. Because at the end of all things, the Christian claim is that only one road leads to God. Only one road leads to heaven. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to the Father is through me. That's Jesus' claim. And if you're avoiding Jesus, my question back is, to what end? To what end? Are you presuming on his grace? You think that maybe I'll have some more time to deal with him later? Maybe you're a little sad and frustrated at the idea of losing your kingdom to him. Look, the proof that he's not out to take from you, but to give to you as your, as your king, it's the cross and the resurrection. Like that's the evidence that he is not out to take from you, but to give to you a life that you can't have building it on your own. He proved that he is a good king willing to die for those he loves. He doesn't take, he gives. And he has the power and wisdom to know what to give you. And under his reign, you'll actually be able to flourish in this world. Because look, reality, you've been avoiding Jesus? Reality, look, all of your stuff is God's stuff. It's all God's stuff anyways. He gave it to you to steward the idea that your stuff is your stuff is an illusion. In fact, I believe that we get to heaven, God's gonna ask us two questions. What'd you do with my son? And what'd you do with my stuff, right? What did you do with my son? How'd you respond to him? And what did you do with what I gave you? Did you use it for my glory or yours? The idea, and here's the other thing, the idea that tomorrow is promised to you is an illusion. Let Ishbo be a warning to you. Instead of throwing up your hands in despair and avoiding Jesus, turn to him. And his response to you will be to bring you in as a son or daughter in his kingdom. And his reign on your throne will be better than yours ever was. Let's finish chapter four, because we see the next response to David's claim in this. It's Ishbo's two traitors. All right, so those two guys carrying his head, they brought Ishbo's head, Ishbo, y'all, it is a tongue twister to say that guy's name, um, to David at Hebron and said to the king, here's the head of Ish, Boshep, son of Saul, your enemy who intended to take your life. Today, the Lord, oh, putting God's name on things that God did not put his name on. The Lord has granted vengeance to my Lord, the king against Saul and his offspring. They were reading the situation the same way Abner was. They thought we got to do something. We need to do something brave and daring, something that'll get us in the new king's good graces so that he can see how valuable we are. That way, he'll keep us around, even though we used to be on the other team. They're trying to put David in their debt through their actions. And then they have the gall to slap God's name on it. You see what this is? It's manipulation wearing religious robes. They come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Listen to me. This is big, church people. Manipulating Jesus will lead to your destruction. Listen, some of you want to perform for Jesus. 
But the real reason you want to do it is so that he will be indebted to you and he will pay you back. But at the end of the day, what you're expecting is Jesus to pay homage to you for all those awesome things that you have done for him. See, this a lot. It's because a crucial part of the gospel, especially in churches in our tribe, often a crucial part of the gospel is missed. You profess Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. Savior, but not as Lord. And here's what that looks like if I were to use that in this drawing. It's that you're still on the throne. You've invited Jesus into your kingdom because, man, he brings some benefit to you. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you're still on the throne. Manipulating Jesus invites him into your life, but not onto the throne. That is a false gospel. And it is rampant in the evangelical church in America. And at the end of the day, when unmasked, it says, Jesus is here to serve me. That's just not the claim Jesus makes, y'all. So I don't like the phrase, um, hey, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. It's like, what? It sounds like, I don't know what it sounds like. It sounds like you're asking him to be in your kingdom. It should be surrender your kingdom to Jesus and invite him onto the throne. Let's go to verse nine. David answered Rechab and his brother Benah, sons of Ramon the Beerothite, as the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every distress. I want to pause right there. David's like, you're citing the Lord as if you know how he works. I know the Lord. I know how he works. He don't need your help. Verse 10. When the person told me, look, Saul is dead. He thought he was the bearer of good news, but I seized him and put him to death as Ziklag. That was my reward to him for his news. How much more when wicked men kill a righteous man in his own house on his own bed. So now, should I not require his blood from you and purge you from the earth? Uh-oh, this is not going the way they planned. So David gave orders to the young men and they killed Rechab and Benah. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Avoiding Jesus and manipulating Jesus Y'all, it's the same as rejecting Jesus, rejecting Jesus, and it leads to the same ends, your own destruction, both in this life and the next. I want to keep going. Let's talk about the third response to David's kingship. To do that, I'm going to go into chapter five, but I'm going to go to the second half because the first half of chapter five is when I want to land the plane. And chapter five is a little bit more like a collage of what happens around David's coronation than a set of chronological events. But look, in chapter five, two different groups of people have this same response to David's claim on the throne. You got the Jebusites who are a part of God's people and the Philistines who are not. Watch this, verse six. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites had said to David, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and the lame can repel you. And they were thinking, David can't get in here. Oh man. They thought they were stronger than David. They didn't need David. They didn't want David. And so they defied David's claim to the throne. You, I don't know if you've ever read um, Tolkien's book series, The Lord of the Rings. Um, but if you have, he creates this position on the throne of the kingdom and he calls it a steward. And the steward's in charge of the kingdom until the true king finally comes back to take the throne. When the true king comes back though, what happens is Denethor, the steward of Gondor. He refuses to let go of the throne. 
he can't do it because he's gotten comfortable in a chair that never belonged to him anyways. And so he defies the king ultimately to his ruin and to the ruin of many under his care. That's what's happening here. The Jebusites are mocking David, defying him because they've gotten comfortable on a spot that never belonged to them anyways. And their defiance leads to their destruction. Look at this, verse seven. I love it because it's just so quick. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David, right? It wasn't the city of David. That's how much of a conqueror happened here. It is now going to be called the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. Now, real quick, in case you're like, wait a minute, David went and just killed all the helpless people? No, no, no. What he's doing is he's doing some more of his trash talk and he's turning their phrase back onto them. He's not saying people that can't see or walk are not allowed in the kingdom. And the proof of that is he's actually going to be the one that cares for John, his buddy Jonathan's son, um, his son Mephibosheth, telling you these names are amazing. We'll see a lot more of them, okay? He's, Mephibosheth can't walk. It's been that way since he was five years old. That's actually a little bit earlier in chapter four, chapter five. Um, he can't walk and David's going to care for him forever. This isn't about that. This is David saying, even the Jebusites' most mighty warriors, they are the lame and the blind of how easy, because of how easily he can defeat them. So David, verse nine, took a residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. He built it up all the way around from the supporting terraces inward. David became more powerful and powerful and the Lord God of armies was with him. Y'all, that last line, that is David's MO. The Lord God of armies was with him. Been with him against every enemy he's faced. And sure enough, later in the chapter, the same thing happens with the Philistines. If anybody would think twice about attacking David, you think it would be these guys, the Philistines. I mean, they got a pretty rich history with him. He was their enemy, then their friend, the kind of frenemy sort of land, and now back to enemy again. You got to assume no Philistine general ever once took a history class where they would have been like, maybe we should second guess this. But nope, the last half of this chapter, twice the same thing happens. Look at this, verse 17. The Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel they all went in search of David, but he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines came and spread out in the Rephim Valley. Then David inquired of the Lord, should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, attack, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim and defeated them there and said, like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out anger against my enemies before me. Therefore, he named that place, the Lord bursts out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. You keep reading, same thing happens again. For both the Jebusites and the Philistines, their response to David's claim to the throne is just defiance. No, you are not the king. I am. I'm going to stay on my throne, not you. Outright flat defying him. That's our third response today. Defying Jesus leads to your destruction. It does. They defy the one the Lord has anointed to be king. And because the Lord is with him, his enemies are defeated. And at the heart of the other two responses, I actually appreciate this one the most because this just kind of open where the other ones tried to mask it. You either bow the knee to Jesus or you defy him. And you will never have peace in your soul and peace in this world until you bow the knee to the true king. That's what we see in the opening of chapter five. 
all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. You'll be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. I want you to see some language here in that first verse. Here we are, your own flesh and blood. The covenant between the king and his people and the book of Chronicles is good. First and second Chronicles is going to go on to say a whole lot more about this moment. It was a three-day celebration. This coronation, that flesh and blood there, that's the feeling and language of a wedding where the groom is the king and the bride that he is making his covenant with is his people. It's not exactly that, but it's as close as we get to it in the scriptures. The king has come to his throne and the people of God receive him and anoint him as their king. And the response to David, and as we see their response to David, we see our response to the gospel. Exalting Jesus onto the throne, that's what leads to our salvation. Putting him on the throne leads to our salvation. You know what's fascinating? Um, Revelation 19 talks about um, Jesus coming, and it talks about Jesus coming to this wedding feast, and he calls Jesus the groom. And the the lamb is also the groom, and he's coming to this wedding feast where we, all of his people whose names have been written in the book of life, we're his bride. And this amazing thing, what we see here with David and his people is a foreshadowing of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel, which is us as the bride of Christ gathering around at a wedding feast with our groom, our King, Jesus. Only when we give Jesus the throne of our soul are we going to find salvation, y'all. When we put him on the throne, we finally find peace, purpose, and fulfillment. Peace with God that leads to peace in our own lives. Purpose, Ephesians 2.10, you were created by God before the foundations of the world for good works and to walk in them. Fulfillment, John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You're made for eternity, and yet here in this world you are finite. You're made for eternity, but you're finite. That's to call you to something bigger than yourself. Your soul needs an eternal king. And Christianity says that king is Jesus. There's this great interaction between Peter and Jesus in Matthew 16. Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I say also that you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys. Listen to this language. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Only a king can give keys to the kingdom. He's the Messiah, the one true king and the good king sacrificed himself for you so that you might have life, life in this world and life forever. That's that last drawing I want to show you is that when you actually put Jesus on the throne of your life, you will find order and peace and a sense of purpose in your life because everything will have a true north that it's pointing towards. You'll be able to have peace in the midst of lots of disarray and craziness that will come in your life because the king 
will be on the throne and not you. When you put him on the throne, he brings order to everything else. That's not something you can do. It's something only he can do. I'm not saying the Christian life will be easy. Never. I'd never say that. I'm saying it'll be purposeful, fulfilling, and peace-filled. He's made the claim to be your king. And my question is, what do you, how are you responding? How are you responding? What are you going to do with all this? I want to show you here. We'll put all three of them up at the same time for you to take a look at it. And just, I want to ask you the question, where are you? Where are you? And be honest with yourself. No sense in, no sense in trying to pretend that you're somewhere that you aren't. I'm going to give us a time just to respond to the Lord. That's how I'm going to close this moment right here, close this sermon. It's just to respond to the Lord in prayer and candidly ask the Lord, my Lord, where am I right now? And where do you want to be? And invite, take your next step with the Lord. Let me close in prayer. If you would bow your heads, both of our campuses, let's respond in a moment of prayer. And then I'll tell us what's happening from here. You saw there are three different, three different ways people can respond. You can avoid him, reject him. You can try and manipulate him to serve your ends. Or you can exalt him. Maybe you've been playing the game where you've been around the things of church maybe for a long time, but you have never handed over the throne of your soul to Christ. I invite you to do that today for your own good, for your own salvation. Would you tell him right there where you are? Lord, today I yield the throne of my heart, the throne of my life, my soul. I yield the throne to you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. And I'm declaring you, Lord and I'm following you. Christian, maybe you need to say it again and repent for where he maybe once was on the throne, but that's been a while. You started running your own play. You've tried to marginalize his authority in your life. It's time for you to come back. However the Lord's calling you to respond, you take just a second. At both of our campuses, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in response, as we always do from our sermon. Um, we're going to continue to respond by singing. We'll be praying. We bring in our tithes and offerings. Um, really exciting at our Northeast campus this morning. They're going to be baptizing someone who's professing faith in Christ, which we're so excited about. Let me pray over us, and then we'll continue to respond to the gospel. Father, you're good. You're so good. Thank you for your grace. We know that we all are prone to rebel against you. And yet in your kindness, you're patient with us. Willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Thank you for your kindness. I pray that today we would respond and put you on the throne. And we experience, Holy Spirit, give us the fruit 
the peace that passes all understanding, the quiet and full life. Our hearts are peaceful. Our lives are ordered and directed for our good and your glory. We know you can do that, so we ask that you would. We praise you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.